Let's pray together. Father, we pray that you would cause us to understand the gospel, what you've accomplished in the Lord Jesus more clearly from this passage than perhaps we have ever before in our lives seen it. Lord, cause us to see what you've done. And Lord, we pray that you would also produce in us the humility that we should feel. Lord, make us those whose only boast is in the cross. And Lord, make us those who delight in you and who trust you completely. We pray that you do this, causing us to worship you. In the name of Jesus and by the power of the Spirit, amen. Lyndon B. Johnson had a problem. His problem was that he was from the South. And, and that meant that his power block in the Senate was a group of racists who wanted to preserve um, segregation in the South. And Lyndon, John, Lyndon B. Johnson wanted to be president. And he knew, he understood, that he could never be president as long as he did not get civil rights legislation passed. Now, it's clear from, from Lyndon B. Johnson's life, from his biography, that, that what motivated him ultimately to pursue the civil rights legislation that he did uh, get passed in the Senate, what motivated him was his overarching ambition, his desire to be president. But he had to, he had to navigate this very tricky situation. The tricky situation was that he needed southern support because that's where he was from, but he also needed northern support. And the two groups were at odds with one another. And so what he did was he ripped off both sides. That's what he did. He convinced the southern, southerners that he was with them, and he deceived them on that point. And he also convinced these, these western states, these uh, guys from Utah and Oregon and, and those places out west, he convinced them that he was with them so that, they would so that both groups would support him in getting what he wanted done, done. And what he accomplished defrauded those from the south and those from the, those from the west. I, I, I'd be glad to go into the details on this, but I really don't want to spend too much time on this. I just want to say... In trying to accomplish his objective, which he did accomplish, he got a voting rights bill passed in the United States Senate, but to do it, he ripped off the, off the South, he, he, he deceived them, and he ripped off the West. I'd be glad to go into the details later. I'm just trying to establish this point. This guy had a problem, and to solve his problem, he defrauded both sides. Why do I tell you that? I tell you that because in this passage, Romans 3, 21 through 31, which I would, I would invite you to open to, Romans chapter 3, and we'll be looking at verses 21 through 31. In this passage, God has a problem, and he doesn't rip anybody off. God has a problem, and he solves the problem legitimately. In fact, he solves the problem in what may be the, the only surprising legitimate way it could have possibly been solved. What's the problem that God has? The problem that God has is that he wants to save sinners. He wants to forgive people. He wants to show mercy 
And he's holy. And he's righteous. And if you let convicted criminals off without punishing them, you're unrighteous. So how is he going to solve this problem? How is God going to make unrighteous people righteous? And how is he going to do that in a way that doesn't make himself unrighteous? Now, to illustrate this, I want to tell you an Old Testament story that we'll use as kind of our narrative storyline to understand what, what Paul is talking about here. So I want to remind you of what happened with David and Bathsheba. David was king of Israel, and he famously sinned with Bathsheba. He committed adultery. He, 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 he took this other man's wife, and then in an attempt to cover up what he had done with another man's wife, he had that man murdered. So David has, has clearly broken two of the Ten Commandments, and probably several others as well, like thou shalt not cover thy neighbor's wife, there's a third. Um, uh, you shall have no other gods before me, there's a fourth. So David just, I mean, we could multiply, we could take the transgressions out that David has committed in his sin with, with Bathsheba. And, and you remember what, what happened. Nathan the prophet came to David and, and presented to him what, what it, this, this story, and David pronounces a righteous judgment on the story that Nathan tells, and then Nathan says, you are the man. And then Nathan outlines what David has done, the sin that he's committed, and David's response is to say, I have sinned against the Lord. And then Nathan's next words are astonishing. Nathan says, the Lord has put your sin away, David. And, and as you look at David's life, now, at one level, David did suffer consequences from what he had done, but he continued as king. He didn't suffer the, the spelled out consequences that the law requires for those transgressions. He wasn't put to death for the murder of Uriah. He wasn't, he wasn't put to death for the adultery with Bathsheba. So, so he was forgiven, and laws that could have been applied were not applied. And I think that... Um, the fact that God forgave David, the fact that Nathan said to David, the Lord has put your sin away, David, I think that explains why a guy named Ahithophel, who, who later rebelled against David, I think that explains in part why he joined Absalom in the revolt against David. Because Ahithophel was Bathsheba's grandfather. And so I think that for Ahithophel it went like this. How is this just? How is this righteous that this man gets off? This man murders my, my granddaughter's husband. He commits adultery with my granddaughter. And he continues as king of, king of Israel. And as a result of that, when, when Absalom, David's son, decides to, to, rev, to pursue a rebellion against David, Ahithophel says, I'm with Absalom. And, and I think in part it was because of what he perceived as injustice. So here's God's problem. God wants to be righteous, and he wants to forgive sinners like David. How can he do this righteously? And, and he wants people like David to be regarded as righteous. What Paul wants to preach in Rome is the good news of how God pulls all this off. So we, we've been talking, as we've been looking at Romans about how in the first 15 verses of this, of this book, Paul explains how he's eager to preach the gospel in Rome, and he, in part he lays out what that gospel is. 
And then in Romans 1, 16 and 17, I would invite you to look at that if you're, if you're open to Romans. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. We're going we're gonna to talk about how the righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel in Romans 3, 21 through 31 in just a second. And then in 1.18 through 3.20, Paul explains how everybody is under sin, both Jew and Gentile. And look at what he says in 3.19 and 20. He says, we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. So if we, if we just go back to our sort of narrative uh, analogy here, the law convicts David. David's mouth before God, before the law, is stopped. He has no excuses. He has no explanations. He is unrighteous. He is condemned. Verse 20, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So in David's case, and in everybody's case, we are all guilty before God, and no one is going to do so many righteous deeds that we are declared to be righteous before God. So that's where we are at the end of Romans 3, verse 20, and that brings us to verses 21 through 24, where, where Paul will explain uh, this, this truth about the righteousness of God that comes by faith. So look at what Paul writes here in Romans 3, verse 21. He says, but now... The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Now, when he says it's been manifested apart from the law, I think what he means is a righteousness of God has been manifested that is not established by deeds, by law-keeping, by works that people do in obedience to the law. Okay, The righteousness of God has been manifested... No, verse 20, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God, and when he, when he uses that phrase, I think it has multiple meanings. One aspect of it is God's own righteousness. Another aspect of it is the righteousness that God requires from us. The righteousness that God expects us to live up to. And Paul is saying that's now been manifested apart from from the law, meaning there's a, there's a kind of righteousness that can be given to people, and it's not based on what they do. And then he, then he, he adds this qualifier at the end of verse 21, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. Now, notice how law and prophets there at the end of verse 21 are both capitalized. I think he's saying the Old Testament bears witness to it. So the first instance of law in verse 21, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Notice how that's lowercase. There, I think he's talking about what the law requires people to do. So apart from what the law requires people to do, a righteousness of God is available, and it's, it's testified to by the Old Testament itself. And let's think of David again. David was told, the Lord has put your sin away, David. So that would be that would be a section of the Bible referred to as the prophets, and, and the Old Testament is bearing witness to that. And Paul is saying that's in keeping with what the law, the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament, also teach. 
And then he explains this righteousness of God in verse 22. He says, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. So, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Here's what Paul is saying. Through faith, people who are not righteous are regarded as righteous. Okay? So, through faith. And in David's case, he doesn't know that it's going to be Jesus Christ. But I think David has the promise that, that a, a future king is going to rise up from his line. And, and because he believes that God is going to bring about reconciliation through that future king from his line, David is trusting what God has promised to do. And through that faith, David is counted or reckoned as righteous. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. So here's, here's the astonishing truth that Paul is articulating here. People who believe what God has done in Jesus, those people have God's righteousness. And, and the righteousness of God here is the righteous life that God requires people to live out. God regards those who believe as being righteous. This is astonishing. And it's astonishing because we're not righteous, are we? You can go ask my kids. They know I'm not righteous. They know the way, the way that I talk to them in the car on the way to our Thanksgiving trip. They did not appreciate it. I'm not righteous. We're not righteous. But God grants to us the righteousness of God. How does he grant? So here's, here's one aspect of the solution. Okay, Lyndon Johnson's solution. I'm going to deceive the Southerners, and I'm going to deceive these Westerners. God's solution, I've got a twofold problem. Unrighteous people, and then my own righteousness. How am I going to make unrighteous people righteous? Well, I will reckon them to be righteous if they'll believe. If they'll trust, I'm going to regard them as righteous. So it's really remarkable what happens. Because we believe, God says, I'm going to impute to you the righteousness of Jesus. And so the, the righteous life that Christ lived counts for those who believe. That's, that's one aspect of God's solution. Verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. And then he says at the end of verse 22, for there is no distinction. Now here, I think what he's talking about is there's no distinction between Jews and Gentiles. You know, 118 through 32, he was talking about largely Gentile sinners, and then 2.1 through 3.20, he's, he's mainly focused on Jewish sinners. And then here he says there's no distinction between Jews and Gentiles. And then he explains in verse 23, for all have sinned. And I think what he means is all Jews and Gentiles have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Uh, this falling short of the glory of God I think, is it, it, the idea is we fail to live out the righteous standard that God requires. We fail to, to so live delighting in God and evidencing His glory to the world and, and living within the instructions that He has given to us. We fail to live out God's glory by sinning. All have sinned, Jew and Gentile, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. 
And then verse 24, he says, and are justified. Now, think about these words. All have sinned and are justified. And here's where Ahithophel comes in. And I think Ahithophel's reaction to David is, this is not just. Do you understand what I'm saying here? David is a sinner. He has broken the commandments, and God justified him. That is not just. That's Ahithophel's reaction. But hear what Paul is saying. All have sinned and are justified. How? How are people justified? Paul uses three phrases here. The first one is, by his grace. This is in contrast with the justification that's alluded to in verse 21 in the phrase, apart from the law. Okay, A law-based justification would mean you lived up to the standard. You met the requirements. And Paul is arguing that applies to nobody. Nobody lived up to the standard. Nobody met the requirements. Therefore, anybody that gets justified is justified by his grace. This is talking about God's own unilateral goodness flowing out to people. When I say unilateral, what I mean is there is no quid pro quo here. There is, there is no sense in which God looks at somebody and says, that person can do good things for me. So in response to the good things that that person is offering me, in response to the deal that person is ready to strike with me, I'm going to justify. No, not at all. Justified by his grace, which means that he freely chose to justify, and his own goodness, God's own goodness, flowed out of him to justify. And then the, the second phrase there elaborates on this, justified by his grace first, second, as a gift, unprompted, unbought, unsolicited, as a gift. This is God freely giving justification. And then the third phrase, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And now, at this point, Paul is moving toward the other part of God's problem. So the first part of God's problem is, he wants to regard unrighteous people as righteous. And God solves that problem, not by ripping people off, not by ripping anybody off, not by bending his own standards, not by rewriting the rules. No, God says, here's what we're going to do. We're going to make it so that those who believe what I have done, those who trust, they are going to receive the righteousness of Jesus so that by faith, they really are righteous. And this is in keeping, I mean, Paul said there in verse 21, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. Remember Genesis 15, 6? Abraham believed and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. What was reckoned as righteousness? Abraham's belief. So God sets it up so that those who believe are counted as righteous even though they're not righteous. That's the, that's the first part of this. Look at, look at that last phrase there, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Paul is now going to explain in, in verses 25 and 26 how this redemption that is in Christ Jesus functions. But before we go on to verse 25... I want to suggest some, some ways that we should apply verses 21 through 24. 
So Paul has taught here that nobody is going to live up to the standard and live out God's righteousness. So I want to urge everybody in the room to stop trying to do that. Don't be a legalist. What, what motivates legalism? What motivates legalism is a thought that goes like this. If I can attain to the standard, God will be pleased with me. Therefore, I am doing my utmost to attain to the standard. Now, there's a fine line between pursuing holiness, without which no one will see the Lord, and slipping over into legalism. And often we only know that we've crossed over into legalism after we've done it. So we must pursue holiness, but we must be careful that we're not trying to establish our righteousness before God by means of our pursuit of holiness. The only way you are going to be regarded as righteous before God is by faith. That's the only way. So, number one, stop trying to establish your righteousness by your performance. If, if you're here and you're an unbeliever, you're not a believer in Jesus, chances are you think you're going to be accepted by God because of your good deeds. And, and what we want you to hear is you're, you're incorrect about that. That is not going to happen. Nobody is going to be accepted before God on the basis of what they themselves have done. Well, then how is anyone accepted before God? The only way is, verse 24, by their being justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And the way that that comes to us individually is, verse 22, the righteousness of God comes to us through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. So we have to acknowledge that we've not lived up to God's glory. We've sinned. And we have to entrust ourselves completely to God and His plan of salvation in Christ. You have to trust Jesus. So we want to, we, we want to leave off with the legalism and carry forward trusting Christ. So verses 21 through 24, Paul outlines the righteousness of God that comes to us by faith. That's the first half of his problem. Now what's the second half of God's problem? Well, I think it's Ahithophel's reaction to what God did to David. If David can be forgiven, there is no righteous God in heaven. I think that's what Ahithophel thinks. And I think that's why Ahithophel decides, I'm not siding with this anointed king of the God of Israel anymore. I'm going to go where the power is. And Absalom has the power, so I'm going to join with him, and we're going to take David out, and we're going to take over. I think that's, that's Ahithophel's calculation. Look at how God solves the problem in verse 25. Having just referred to Christ Jesus, he says in verse 25, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his own blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So I want to work backwards through those two verses. Let's start at the end of verse 26. The justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. That's what we've been talking about in verses 21 through 24. God justifies those who trust in Christ. God counts them as righteous. 
And then the phrase right before that, so that he might be just. This is answering Ahithophel's dilemma. Ahithophel is saying, if God is going to forgive David, he must not be righteous. And God says, the way that I'm going to establish my righteousness is by putting Christ forward to bear the penalty that David deserved. So this establishes God's justice. And then look at this verse 26, at the first phrase, this sort of salvation historical phrase here. Uh, it was to show his righteousness at the present time. Now that Christ has come, God establishes his righteousness. And because he does this because at the end of verse 25, in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins, sins like David's. So God's divine forbearance, his patience toward sinners, had caused him to pass over these transgressions and not punish them. And then when Christ comes, he puts Christ forward as a propitiation at the first part of verse 25, by his blood to be received by faith. So God, it's, it's like God is a blacksmith. And what he's working with is a hammer that is, is his justice and an anvil that is his love. And he's got to have both if he's going to mold a, a, a saint. And, and so the, the love and the justice have to both be applied to the molten metal that, it, that God is molding into a holy and righteous person. A person who's going to be regarded as righteous and transformed to actually be righteous, to live out righteousness, never perfectly, but increasingly, never perfectly until Christ returns and that person is glorified. So the, the hammer of God's justice and the anvil of God's love are both applied here. Without the hammer, the anvil is useless. The justice has to be applied, and God applies it against Christ. Verse 25, whom God put forward as a propitiation. Denny sent me these great quotes. One is from John Stott, uh, his book, The Cross of Christ. John Stott wrote this. It is those who cannot come to terms with any concept of the wrath of God who repudiate any concept of propitiation. It is God himself who in holy wrath needs to be propitiated. God himself who in holy love undertook to do the propitiating and God himself who in the person of his son died for the propitiation of our sins. Thus, God took his own loving initiative to appease his own righteous anger by bearing it his own self in his own son when he took our place and died for us. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. That reference to the blood of Jesus alludes to the way that in the Old Testament, it's established, Leviticus 17, that the life of the body is in the blood, and the blood, was, blood sacrifice was given to Israel to make propitiation for their sins, to cover over their transgressions. And all those old covenant sacrifices have been brought to completion and fulfillment in this one sacrifice of the Lord Jesus, who by his blood 
propitiates the wrath of God. And then that, that, that next phrase there in verse 25, to be received by faith. This just reiterates what Paul has said in verse 22. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. We receive what God has done for us in Christ by faith. You don't get this because you, you show up on, on Sundays at church. You don't get this because you put money in the box at the back of the building. You don't get this because you do a certain amount of service on behalf of the church. You don't get this because you think the right way about various issues. No, you receive it by faith. You, you believe what God says in the Bible. You believe what God has accomplished in Christ. And you rest in faith and you receive the work that has been, been done on your behalf. There in the middle of verse 25, this was to show God's righteousness. Look at how the problem is solved. He's got unrighteous people that he wants to regard as righteous. He solves that problem by imputing to them the righteousness of Christ when they believe. His other problem is this makes him look unjust. And he solves that problem by putting Christ forward as a sacrifice of propitiation to show his righteousness. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Some people have said that this is the innermost meaning of Paul's understanding of the gospel. This, this, these verses, this passage. I heard another pastor who, say that, who said that from these statements that Paul makes here, this is, this is really the essence of Christianity and every, every other aspect of Christianity can be built out from this passage. But right here, what we have is justification by faith and the way that God establishes his own justice, his own righteousness, by demonstrating his righteousness in the death of Jesus so that those who trust Christ can be regarded as righteous. Now, Paul himself is going to apply this gospel that he's taught in, in, in the next few verses, verses 27 through 31. So rather than me offer applications, I'm going I'm to take us right into verse 27 and let Paul apply this to us. Look at verse 27. Then what becomes of our boasting? Now, in the context, I think Paul specifically has in mind Jewish boasting, right? Because he's been asking, like in 3.1, then what advantage has the Jew, right? So, so Paul has been considering reasons that Jewish people might have to boast. So in particular, I think it, we could say, what becomes of our, that is, we Jews, what becomes of our boasting. And his response is, it is excluded. But we can, we can extend this from Jewish boasting, which is excluded because no Jew is ever going to establish their righteousness before God. And, and the only way a Jew is ever going to be regarded as righteous before God is the same way a Gentile is going to be regarded as righteous by, before God, that is by faith. We can extend that to any boasting, can't we? Even if we're not Jewish people who think that we can boast on our, our ethnic heritage or the covenants that God made with our forefathers or, or whatever. 
We can extend it because, because works-based boasting is based on what we accomplish, whereas faith-based boasting is, is based on what Christ has accomplished, right? So works-based boasting says, look at how accomplished I am. Look at what I was able to do. Look at what I was able to attain. And it's like Paul is saying, I mean, he doesn't say this, obviously, but it's like he's saying, that's like somebody boasting about the luxury accommodations that they had on the Titanic. What good did that do them? It did them no good, did it? It didn't save them. It didn't get them from, from one coast to the other. The Titanic is at the bottom of the ocean. So it doesn't matter which one of those passages had, passengers had the right social connections. It doesn't matter which one of those passengers had the highest income. It doesn't matter which one of those passengers went to the most prestigious schools or had the biggest house or the nicest mode of transportation. All the things that people are inclined to boast about. It did nothing for them. What becomes of our boasting? Before the cross, it is excluded. We have no grounds for boasting. What we want is we want an understanding of the gospel that Paul has just articulated in Romans 3, 21 through 26 to eradicate pride from our hearts. We have no basis for pride. There is nothing about us that God is going to say, oh, well, look at everything that person remember remembers. I'm going to count them righteous for that. Or, oh, look at how fashionably that person dresses. I'm going to count her righteous for that. Or, oh, look at how disciplined that person is about their diet. I'm going to count them righteous for that. No, nothing God is not going to look at anything that we do and decide that's enough for me to count them righteous. The only basis for righteousness before God is faith. And the reason that's a basis is because of what Christ accomplished, not because we believed. So there's no grounds for boasting in our hearts. So we want the gospel to eliminate pride. And if this happens for us, we won't be people that need to tell others about everything that we've accomplished. Recently, I heard, I heard a guy preaching, and he said, do you know how to know whether somebody's doing CrossFit? They'll tell you. You know, that, that's the way it goes, isn't it? We, we think we're doing something well, and we want to tell everybody about it. We think we've accomplished something. We think that we've had a neat experience. We want to run to Twitter or Instagram or Facebook. Hey, everybody, look at me. Look at how awesome I am. Verse 27, what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. It is excluded. There's no grounds for it. There's no reason for it. And, and if we really get this, if the gospel takes hold in our hearts, then we'll become like Paul who said, far be it from me that I should boast except in the cross. That's the only thing to boast about. And look, look at how he continues. What becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? Well, no, Paul. That would actually give people grounds for boasting, right? So he says, no, but by the law of faith. Boasting is excluded by the law of faith 
Because your faith is not in you, your faith is in Christ. Verse 28, for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Now, now here, he's, he's going to apply this to his Jew, Jewish audience in verse 29. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Why does he ask that question? I think he asked that question because if justification were by works, then the only people with any possibility of being justified would be those with the, with the law clearly stated to them so that they know what is required, so that they can try to live up to the standard. And Paul is saying, no, God is not the God of the Jews only. He's also the God of the Gentiles. Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. So his point is, if, if justification were by works, well, then the only people who could be justified were, would be Jewish people since they have the law. But God is not just the God of the Jews. He's the God of the Jews and the Gentiles. Verse 30, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Two different phrases that mean the same thing. By faith, through faith, same thing. God is the God of all people, and the only way anybody gets justified is by faith. And then this question in verse 31, do we then overthrow the law by this faith? And I think what he means here is, are we overthrowing both the teaching of the Old Testament and the requirements of the law? And Paul's answer is, by no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Now, think about the way that the law is upheld. I want to go through several senses in which the law is upheld. First, all of the promises made in the Old Testament are upheld through this gospel, which comes to fruition in Jesus. Second, the righteous requirements of the law that we have failed to live up to are upheld as God visits justice, demonstrating his justice against Christ on the cross as Jesus dies to pay the penalty for our sins. Third, as the hammer and the anvil come together on the, the heated up metal that God is forming into a saint, people actually do get transformed. People's behavior actually does begin to conform to what the law requires so that over in Romans 8, Paul's going to say in verse 4, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. So we actually do begin to obey. So by no means is the law overthrown by faith. On the contrary, what Paul is teaching upholds the law. It upholds the promises made in the law. It upholds God's justice taught in the law. It upholds the righteous requirement for God's people to live out. And it's the gospel that resolves this problem that God had. How do I, how do I declare unrighteous people to be righteous and be righteous myself? Through what God has accomplished in Christ on the cross. So Ahithophel... He tried to go with power, and it didn't work out for him. Absalom was defeated, and Ahithophel saw that his counsel was not fo followed, and so he set his house in order, and he hung himself. In despair, he ended his own life. That's not the way we want to go, is it? We, we need to know that there is a hammer and there is an anvil. We need to know that God is just. 
and that he's loving. And the gospel upholds these truths for us. And, and we want to go the way of David. We want to go the way of saying, I'm a sinner. I've sinned against the Lord. And my only hope is God's mercy. And by that faith, Nathan the prophet said to David, the Lord has put your sin away. If you will trust in Christ and not boast in yourself, but boast in the cross, those words can be true for you as well. I'm going to read this quotation from Charles Spurgeon that I think captures a lot of this. Uh, If you were here, I think at last year's Christmas service, you might have heard this quotation there. Spurgeon says, Can you now think what a vast aggregate of misery there would have been in the sufferings of all God's people if they had been punished through all eternity? And recollect that Christ had to suffer an equivalent for all the hells of all his redeemed. I can never express that thought better than by using those oft-repeated words. It seemed as if hell were put into his cup. He seized it. And at one tremendous draught of love, he drank damnation dry, so that there was nothing left of all the pangs and miseries of hell for his people ever to endure. I say not that he suffered the same, but he did endure an equivalent for all this and gave God the satisfaction for all the sins of all his people and consequently gave him an equivalent for all their punishment. Now can ye dream... Can ye guess the great redemption of our Lord Jesus Christ? Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would cause us to understand what it is to be justified by faith, apart from works of the law. And Lord, we pray that our understanding of this truth would be attested by the elimination of boasting from our hearts, from our behavior, from our speech, from what we type onto screens. And Lord, we pray that you would cause us to be those who boast only in the cross. Lord, cause us to understand who you are and what you have done through the gospel. And make us those who praise the Lord Jesus, who drank damnation dry. Father, we love you and We pray that you would cause our mouths to be full of this message, that we might tell others that they need not try to legalistically establish their righteousness before you because you have done all that is necessary through the Lord Jesus and that you reckon those who believe as righteous before you. Lord, we pray that you would give us many opportunities to speak these truths, and we pray that you would give us the joy of seeing many people turn from their sins and turn from their own efforts and trust completely and only in Christ. Amen.